Do we follow the Old Testament law? Most of us would say no, that we're not under the law, as the New Testament says. But what about the Ten Commandments? Most of us would still hang the Ten Commandments up in our living room, or at least our bathroom, and we'd still say those apply, right? Well, they're part of the law. So do we follow the law or not? We'll hash those issues out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and a Jeep owner, and I'm going to start taking that second part a little more seriously now. I say that because I recently read a headline that said this, a Jeep owner who dropped his vehicle off at a dealership for an oil change is being sued for $15 million over the death of a mechanic. Now, when I saw that, my first thought was that the Jeep owner, he must have done something like really illegal or really dangerous with his vehicle if it killed a mechanic just for working on it. So my curiosity got, you know, it got the best of me. I clicked on it to find out what had happened. Turns out the Jeep had no issues with it whatsoever. The owner hadn't done anything wrong. But here's what the story said. I'm reading right from the story. It said, you see the Jeep in question had a manual transmission, and the mechanic changing the oil was 19 years old, and he had no idea how to drive a stick. When he started the car, he removed his foot from the clutch, and the gears engaged. The Jeep jumped forward, striking and killing a married 42-year-old co-worker. The 19-year-old also did not have a driver's license, and should never have been around the wheel of a car, even if it were an automatic. So maybe by now you're as confused as I was. The owner of the vehicle was not even around. It was a teenage mechanic who was to blame for the whole situation. So why was this 19-year-old not the one sued? Or maybe the dealership sued for hiring him? So I read on, and the story, as it turned out, happened in Michigan. And Michigan has a strange law that no other state in America has. In Michigan, an injured co-worker cannot sue the boss because of the boss's negligence. <laughs> In this case, the boss is negligent because they hired someone who didn't know how to drive a stick and didn't even have a driver's license and hired them to drive cars into the garage. So even though the boss was negligent in hiring someone who shouldn't have been driving in the first place, the victim's family is not allowed to hold the boss legally responsible. So the dealership does have to pay some workers' compensation, but they can't be sued for negligence. So maybe you're wondering by now still, But why is the owner of the Jeep being sued whenever he still wasn't even around whenever this happened? Well, it's because of another Michigan law that's known as the owner's liability statute. And this says that the owner of a car could be held legally responsible for an accident if the owner gave permission for use of the car to whoever was driving it. When the Jeep driver gave his keys over to the employee who was driving, he gave permission to the employee to drive the car. And this makes the owner legally responsible and automatically liable for the driver of that car's negligence. So (laughs) that's right. A vehicle owner who gives his keys to someone, they can be held responsible for whatever the person who drives that vehicle does. So you might want to ask to see a driver's license the next time you drop your Jeep off for an oil change, especially if you live in Michigan. And thankfully, like I said, that's a legal situation that is specific to Michigan. 
The other states in the country, they don't have laws like that on the books. And and you probably hear about kooky laws from time to time. Maybe they made some kind of logical sense when they were first put into place. But many years later, the circumstances that led to that law becoming a law have changed. And so now some of them just appear silly, you know, in Canada. Um, at least 35% of the music on the radio must be by Canadian artists. So that, like every hour, 30, 35% of the music each hour must come from Canadian artists. So they listen to a lot of Justin Bieber and Nickelback. So pray for Canada, guys. And then in Poland, it's against the law to wear Winnie the Pooh shirts. And if you're wondering why, it's because he doesn't have pants. So that is considered indecent exposure, even on a cartoon character. That's indecent exposure over there in Poland. In Switzerland, it's illegal to hike naked. Now, that one's actually a pretty good law. So now that I think about it... um, I guess the kooky thing about that one is that they needed a law for that in the first place. Apparently, years ago, there was some kind of fad. Uh, and then for real, there was like some trend uh, that was naked hiking. So they had to make a law to, to put a stop to it. In Wyoming, public buildings are required to display art inside. And that art has to be valued at no less than 1% of the building's value. That's a law in Wyoming. In Australia, kites are illegal. In Spain, sandcastles are illegal. Now, don't ask me for an explanation of any of these things. I know that they made sense at one time. There is some reason they put that law into place at, at some point a long time ago. But in modern times, we'd say they don't really have an application anymore. So we kind of dismiss them. They're old-fashioned kooky laws. You know, and, and everybody, everywhere has at least one or two of those, those silly laws in their books somewhere. Uh, but that's also how some people view the Bible. They say the laws in the Bible are kooky and outdated. They question whether we still need to even follow them today or whether they ever should have been followed in the first place, especially when it comes to the Old Testament law. And that's the legal code handed down to the Israelites by Moses. And that makes up a large portion of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. A lot of that, well, collectively, a lot of that, a lot of times that's called the law, uh, or sometimes we refer to that as the Pentateuch. But we call that the law a lot of the times. A lot of times when you read in the Bible, when they reference the law, they're referencing those books or sometimes specifically Deuteronomy itself. Um, So I kind of teased the problem we're going to deal with today already uh, back in the opening. Do we follow the Old Testament law? Because most Christians would answer, well, no, we don't have to because we're not under the law. That's That's a quote right out of Romans 6. So that's on solid ground that we're not under the law. But wait a second. What about honor your father and mother, or you shall not lie. Now, those would still apply, right? And they come straight from the Old Testament law as well. So do these things apply or not? Well, we're here today to answer that question. And I'm just going to go ahead and answer that right now. It depends on what kind of law it is. Okay, so when we ask, should we follow this law or not, this Old Testament law, it depends on what kind of law it is. And this is not arbitrary. Um, There are distinct categories of law in the Old Testament. And I would say, broadly speaking, there's three categories. You have the religious law, the civil law, and the moral law. Okay, so those are the three broad categories, and then you can kind of break it down further inside of that. But you got your religious law, your civil law, and your moral law. So the religious law, or sometimes you'll see this called the ceremonial law. 
This is pertaining to sacrifices, to temple worship, to the holidays, which are known as the feasts or or the Sabbaths would fall under this category. Um, the priests, the food, all those kind of things. Those were the religious or ceremonial laws. And those were fulfilled in Jesus. And we're going to explain why later, why those were, how the, how they were fulfilled in Jesus. And so why we don't follow them necessarily. Then you also have your civil law, whenever you're reading the Old Testament law. And these are the things pertaining to rules of government, to punishments for crimes, to land boundaries. Um, so a lot of that kind of like legal code type of stuff, um, those are that's another category of law in the Old Testament. And, and I would, I'll just go ahead and say those only pertained to ancient Israel when it was operating as a sovereign nation, um, which, of course, is not the case. Well, it is the case again today, but for then for a long time there, it wasn't the case. So we'll get into that, too. And then the, the last category I want to discuss today is the moral law. And this pertains to matters that of just right or wrong, right and wrong, good and bad. These are the moral laws. OK, and these would still apply. Now, sometimes they'll carry civil punishments that we might not apply. So we'll, we'll explain that, too. But the Old Testament law, I'm going to read a few examples of Old Testament law. And we're going to start here with the religious law or the ceremonial law. And I know as I start to read these, some of these examples, you might zone out. <laughs> and I understand um, a lot of these like ceremonial and religious laws, they come straight out of Leviticus. And most Christians don't really like Leviticus very much. They don't like to read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, I, and I've heard it time and time again, a lot of well-meaning Christians. They get really gung-ho about reading their whole Bible in a year. Like it's their New, new Year's resolution a lot. So they'll start it in January. And they think, by December, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. And, you know, sometime in late January, early February, they're already quitting because they run into Leviticus, and that's just not the most interesting part to read in your Bible. And, and this is one of the reasons why so many Christians will question the purpose of Old Testament law in the life of a New Testament believer, because they read this stuff in Leviticus, and they're like, why am I reading this? What is this even here for? Is this just a big waste of time? So I want to read some examples. If you zone out for a minute, I understand, but I just feel like I need to read this stuff so then I can explain better why we don't do these things anymore. So I'm just picking some random Old Testament laws to give you kind of a sample of what some of these religious laws were. Let's start with sacrifices. Um, you start into Leviticus. It goes through a whole long list of sacrifices for several chapters. Uh, let me pick out one here. It's from Leviticus chapter 3. It's called the peace offering. And chapter 3 starts off this way. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron sends the priests shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. So that's one of those. And that goes on for a lot longer, too. I just read two verses there. So that's like one of the sacrifices. That's the peace offering. Let me give you an example of one of the food laws. I'm categorizing this under the ceremonial law. Um you know, if you read Leviticus, like especially chapter 11, it gives a lot of details of what kind of foods that the Israelites were allowed to eat and what they should not eat. And so in, in verses 9 and 10 of Leviticus 11, it talks about why they cannot eat shellfish. It says, these you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. So in other words, no no shellfish. Um, you go to Leviticus 23. 
And it's a list of all the holidays that they, they celebrate throughout the year. Kind of like in America, you know, we've got Independence Day and Christmas Day and Thanksgiving and Labor Day. These are all of our national holidays. Well, in Leviticus, they also had some national holidays that Israel was to celebrate. Um, one of them was the Feast of Trumpets. It says in verse 24, Speak to the people of Israel, saying in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So those are just some different examples of religious laws that ancient Israel would follow. And and these do not apply today because the Old Testament makes it clear that they just don't apply today. Um, for example, the, uh, the Old Testament talks about priests, but the New Testament tells us that Jesus was our final priest. So we don't need a priest to offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. So we don't need priests anymore. This is one area where I'd say I feel like the the, the Catholics and Orthodox, um, the, the those wings of Christianity, that they get this wrong because they call their spiritual leaders priests. And I would just say that is Old Testament. Uh, priests are an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, our spiritual leaders are called uh, pastors, shepherds. You know, there's some different words the New Testament uses, but we don't use the word priest anymore. That's an Old Testament thing. Uh, and speaking of sacrifices there, let me just read to you from Hebrews chapter 9. This is verses 11 and 12. It says, But when Christ appeared as a, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So it's saying right there in Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews goes through this in great detail, of why we don't do animal sacrifices anymore. Because Jesus, being a sacrifice for us on the cross, he was the last sacrifice that God required for um, for sins. And, and so therefore, we don't need to, that's why we do not kill animals as New Testament believers. And um, that was a practice set up in the Old Testament, it had a purpose. It was to teach people that sin is such an egregiously bad thing that it requires the shedding of blood of an innocent animal. It requires that shedding of blood uh, in order to um, actually it didn't totally wipe away God's wrath, but it like it, it uh, um, suppressed God's wrath, we might say, or it it delayed God's wrath. It you know so God didn't punish if you just followed this ritual of of symbolically transferring your sins to an animal and killing that animal. Um, but it, Hebrews kind of bears all this out, that that was never meant to be a permanent solution. The blood of, of like goats and bulls, I think it says, that that could not wipe away sins forever. It required a better sacrifice, and that better sacrifice was Jesus. And so uh, when Jesus came as that better sacrifice and died for our sins, never again do we need animal sacrifices to cover the sins of mankind. So... Hebrews makes that pretty clear. I just read a little bit there. And so that's why we don't do animal sacrifices anymore. So when we talk about the Old Testament law, does it still apply? It depends on which laws you're talking about. This animal sacrifice laws, uh, bringing offerings to the temple or tabernacle, those things don't apply anymore because we live in a New Testament time where Jesus has nullified that part of the law. Uh, when we were talking about food laws earlier, the New Testament says that the food laws have been nullified in this new covenant that we're in. Acts chapter 10, Peter's having a vision, and God makes this plain to Peter in the vision. It starts in verse 12. It says, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles 
and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. So the food laws, those had a purpose in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God says we don't need those laws anymore. He's nullified the food laws. So (laughs) you can eat bacon now. You can eat shrimp. You can eat all that stuff in the New Testament because those the new uh, the Bible says right, right there in the New Testament the Bible says you don't have to follow that part anymore. So it's not that we're just like de- denying or disregarding or trying to disobey God by not following the Old Testament dietary laws. We are following God by listening to what He said in the New Testament. I've replaced those dietary laws. You can eat whatever you want now. What God has made clean, do not call common, is what He said. Do we follow the Old Testament holidays, you know, that are spoken of there, that we the, the feasts of Israel? Should we do that? Uh, Romans 14, 5. It answers that question. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So that's telling us right there, you know, you can celebrate whatever holidays you want. And that includes the Old Testament feasts. And that includes the Sabbaths. You don't have to follow the the rules of the Sabbath or the rules of Passover and all that. We don't need to do the sacrifice of Passover anyway. But, you know, you don't have... Now, you can. There's nothing wrong with that. That's That's what the Bible's saying in Romans 14. You can do it. It's optional. These are not rules that God has placed on Christians anymore. So you're not sinning if you choose not to. And that applies to, you know, Christmas, Resurrection Sunday, all that stuff. You can observe that if you want. You don't have to. I think, you know, there's good reasons to do that stuff, but it's not a matter of sin. So um, there's some of these rules, and especially the religious or ceremonial rules in the Old Testament that have been nullified by the New Testament. These are Those are some things right there that the Old Testament, um, they just don't apply anymore because the New Testament knocks them out. So that's why we don't follow every single thing in the Bible, because the Bible itself tells us not to. Now, you might question if those things were only temporary, if, if why did God put them in the Bible in the first place? Like, why did he put those in his inspired word for all of mankind to follow and read if we weren't supposed to literally follow every single thing? Well, the reason for that is, uh, there, there actually, there could be more than one reason. Um, you know, maybe maybe they just applied when Israel was camping in the desert. Like, I think that's what a lot of the dietary stuff comes down to, the cleanliness laws, the dietary laws. Those were probably just put into place because of the time period that the Old Testament was in, and especially the situation that ancient Israelites were in. God was just trying to keep them healthy and trying to keep them to, to, from, from eating bad things while they were running around in the desert. Um, that he, they were, he was trying to keep them from eating the unhealthy things. He was trying to show them, you know, if you pick up a, a sickness or a disease, living out here in tents, this is what you do to take care of that. So a lot of this just applied uh, probably, probably because— God doesn't always give the reasons why, but probably because of this, the historical situation Israel was in, which was, of course, long past by the time the New Testament came around. And then other another reason is some of these things foreshadowed Jesus. They taught Israel about things, uh, about God and about salvation and preparing people for the Messiah. Like I mentioned about the laws about sacrifices, they taught that there must be a punishment to atone for sin. Um, and and that so that was fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, the purpose of the feast laws— was that they were, they actually, they synced up so perfectly with what Jesus did on the cross. Like he died on Passover 
and the feast of first fruits is the day he arose. And you can go through those feasts and find all, find all these things that correspond to Jesus. I think on this podcast, someday I want to go through the feasts, actually, and bear all that out, because that would be a real fun study for us to do. So let me know if you'd like me to do that soon. Uh, that's something we can get into. But but these things, they had a fulfillment in Jesus and the, the work he did, with, especially regarding the cross. So that was part of the reason they were given in the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has actually done those things— now that he has been our Passover lamb, now that he was, he did die and was the first fruits of all creation, um, the firstborn of all creation. What, now that he's done that, then we don't have to follow those Old Testament laws regarding that anymore. And and the New Testament makes this so clear. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So um, I appreciate the New Testament making this so clear and kind of just, you know, being very detailed about what categories of laws we don't have to follow, because that's so helpful to us. Let's talk about another type of law, another major category of Old Testament law that we don't need to follow today, and that's the civil law. The civil law refers to the punishments for doing wrong. And all I want you to get from this, um, as I explain this, I just want you, here's what I want you to get from this, is that um, we don't follow these things anymore in a literal sense, but I do still think it's good to study these things like the Old, the Old Testament civil law. I think they can be very helpful to us in learning what God thinks of certain things. So um, let's start here with Exodus 21 verses 15 and 16. It says, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Let me stop there for a second. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Okay, so um, if, you know, if you hit your parent today, does that mean that we haul you into church and stone you to death? Is that what we do? Well, no. We don't do that anymore in the new... You never heard of that happening at a church before, right? But this does show us what God thinks of hitting your parents. God really, 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 really doesn't like that. And, you know, he already said in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. So we already know that's God's desire. But, man, we see right here, if you were to hit one of them, that is really bad to God. Like he actually said in the Old Testament civil law, they'll put you to death for that. You know, the right thing to do in response to someone hitting their parent is to execute them. Like, so that it shows you just right there we, that we may not follow that law literally today, but it shows you, I think it's very instructive to us of how seriously God takes it that we honor our parents and and how much God frowns upon it, to put it mildly, how much he frowns upon it if we were to hit one of our parents. Here's another, here's another thing from the Old Testament civil law. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If you steal a man, that means kidnap someone. To steal a man is to kidnap them. So whoever steals a man and sells him, if anyone is found in possession of him, he shall be put to death. So that shows right there that the African slave trade was unbiblical. Okay, and I have to point that out, I feel like, because um, people, uh, you know, old-time Americans, people who brought the slaves over to America, they actually tried to use the Bible to justify the slavery that they were doing. And yes, the Bible does talk about slavery. I think a better word for that would be servanthood. 
Um, some translations don't even use the word slave like that. But uh, but anyway, yes, there's talk about slavery. There's Old Testament laws regarding what the Bible sometimes calls slavery, but it was not like the slavery that we have that we had in America, you know, a few hundred years ago, where where um, people against their will were kidnapped in Africa and then brought over to America on ships or or to other um, a lot of times westernized countries like Europe and 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 over in India. So all of that would have been wrong according to the even the Old Testament biblical code, and and that does not at all correspond to the what I would not even call slavery, what was going on in the Old Testament times. But anyway, we don't have to get into that today. I would just say this. There were people a few hundred years ago in America who defended slavery by pointing to the Bible and tried to use the Bible to justify slavery and how they treated African-American people. But Exodus 21.16 shows if they were actually following the Bible, every slave owner back then should have been put to death. If they were in possession of someone who was kidnapped and, and put into slavery against their will, every slave owner should have been put to death according to the Old Testament civil code. Now again, am I saying that the New Testament church, that we need to go out and hunt down kidnappers and slave owners and put them to death? I, that's not what I'm saying, okay? But let me just make a... I'm going to try to make a nuanced point here, okay? If our government, if they wanted to make a law saying that kidnappers or slave owners must be put to death. I would be perfectly fine with that. I'll just say that. I'll say that right now. I would be fine. I would even call that a righteous law if they wanted to do that. Even if even for kidnapping. So if they said we're going to make a law where we put kidnappers to death. I'd say that was a righteous law because it's the same thing that God said deserved death in the ancient Israel. So I Personally, I'd be totally fine with it if the government decided to do that too. Now, as far as you and I and the church are concerned, that's not a burden that God has placed on the church. That's not the role of the church to execute slave owners, to you know, to go out and enact vigilante justice. That's not the role of the church, but it is the role of the government. If you read Romans 13, it's the role of the government to put wrongdoing to death. And so if they wanted to include kidnapping as, as something that could earn the death penalty— I'd be totally down with that because that's what the Old Testament, that is what God did with kidnappers in the Old Testament. So anyway, I'm trying to make a nuanced point here, okay? So just to make sure you're following. Putting people to death is not the role of the New Testament church. These civil law, um, these laws that were the civil law in the Old Testament law, they pertained to ancient Israel whenever it was acting as a sovereign nation. This is how they were to behave and how they were to manage their society, Okay. Let's look at another civil law, Exodus 21, or sorry, 22, Exodus 22, verses 1 and 2. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So in ancient Israel's laws, if you steal something, when you pay it back, what you have to do is pay back four or five times the amount. Now, is that the rule in modern times? Is that the rule in America? You know, <laughs> no, it's not. Um... But I say it would give us a good rule of thumb if we did a law like that. Because, you know, if you're in America, so let's say someone steals $1,000 from you and they go out and, and spend it, okay? And then they get caught. Well, in America, they might send that guy to jail for a little while. You might not ever get your $1,000 back. It might just be gone because it was stolen. And they put that guy in jail 
And you could try to, I guess you could try to sue him and get it back in a small claims court or go on Judge Judy or something. You know, you could try that, but you're going to have so many legal expenses going through all that, that it's not going to, in the end, you're just not going to get that money back that you had stolen. Okay. Now in ancient Israel, that was not their system. They didn't have a jail. If you stole, you just had to pay back four times the amount. So if someone stole a thousand dollars from you, they have to pay you back four thousand dollars. Let me just ask, what system do you think you'd like better? <laughs> I'd say God's ways are better than man's ways. But this is why I like studying Old Testament civil law. I just like seeing better ways of doing things than what man has figured out. So see, all these rules in the Old Testament, they were for our good. Well, they were for Israel's good. They're good rules, okay? And as I've been saying, we're not under the civil law. It only pertained to ancient Israel whenever it was conducting itself as a nation. And then later on, if you read your Bible, if you study history, Israel eventually gets conquered. First, the Assyrians conquered them, uh, for most of them anyway. There was a, the, the southern tribes were left. And then, um, but, but just to stick with Assyria for a minute, once those Israelites got conquered by someone else, their civil laws couldn't apply anymore. They had to follow just whoever was in charge of them. So eventually, after Assyria, the Babylonians rolled through and they conquered Assyria so then they took control of those northern tribes. And then they also conquered the southern tribes. So they had all of Israel. So by that point, once the Babylonians were in control, Israel just had no way to follow the civil law. By then, it was just basically nullified by outside forces. Then the Persians conquered Babylon. Then the Greeks conquered the Persians. Then the Romans conquered the Greeks. And then, then the Romans were in charge of things for a while. And that's when Jesus was born. So even by the time Jesus was born... The Israelites had not followed the Old Testament civil law for centuries. Um, so even like when they arrested Jesus and they put they put him on trial, they convicted Jesus of blasphemy because blasphemy, that would have been a death penalty crime under Old Testament civil law. But according to the Roman law, that wasn't something that you could just put someone to death for. So they had to go and get the Romans permission to put Jesus to death. That's why they went to Pilate and they were begging him to allow them to put Jesus to death. And Pilate had to sign off on that um, because the Jews just, they weren't allowed to follow their own, uh, the, their own, um, they weren't allowed to come up with their own death penalty rules. They had to have permission from the Romans to put someone to death. So they couldn't follow a lot of these civil pen penalties that were laid out in the, in the Old Testament. That civil law just no longer applies. It has been effectively nullified long before the New Testament even began. And then after the New Testament got started and the church got started, the church became the means through which mankind was to have relationship with God. And we just don't see them saying, okay, well, now we need to take the, the Old Testament civil law and apply that in our churches, okay? Uh, you, they, they don't even do that in the New Testament. They even understood by then. It's long gone. We can't do that anymore. Uh, in fact, the things that could get you the death penalty in Old Testament Israel. Okay, let's 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 give an example here. Sexual immorality. There were lots of types of sexual immorality that could get you the death penalty in ancient Israel. Not all the types of sexual immorality, but there were a lot of them that could. Okay, premarital sex that would not. It was still considered a serious sin, but they didn't they didn't like execute you just for that. But they would for adultery. Okay, adultery was punishable with death in the Old Testament law. Homosexuality was, incest was, and there, there's more of them that were punishable by death. And this issue comes up in the New Testament too. It comes up in Corinth. Paul addresses this problem 
in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, there's a couple in the church, and they are guilty of incest, literally. Now, Paul doesn't come in and, and he doesn't write to them and say, these people should be executed. What he says is, they should be excommunicated. So right there, there's an example of what we should do when a Christian is living in unrepentant sin. We're supposed to kick them out. And, and, but this is also an example of what not to do. We do not kill them. It's not the, it's not the church's job to kill them for that, okay? So um, we kind of know this, but I'm just kind of giving the biblical basis for it here so you understand why we know this. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he doesn't say, oh, they're doing incest. We need to put them to death. That's not what Paul says because he understands why they can't follow the civil law anymore, and he's not even trying to get us to. He says, but as a New Testament church, we should kick them out of the church until they repent. So you can read about all that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it goes into chapter 6 with some of that stuff too. Um, to think of another—here's an example from the Old Testament of how this civil law operated. Because uh, we were just covering this in, in my Sunday school class a few weeks ago. We covered the story of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. And that's a very famous story. You know, it's where they go up on a hill, and they have a couple altars, and they say, which God is going to answer by fire— and the 450 prophets of Baal call out all night, and, God, and, and Baal never answers them. He never sends down fire because he's not real. And then Elijah, at the end, he, he, he I won't go into the whole thing, but he prays too, and, and God answers with fire. He sends fire down to lick up the offering. And um, the prophets of Baal are really freaked out because God just showed himself to be 100% real and Baal to 100% be a phony. And But then here's what it says after that. Then it says, Elijah like took the 450 prophets of Baal and slaughtered all of them. He like, killed them all, 450 guys. <laughs> he killed them. <laughs> and uh, God didn't even tell him to do that. He just did it. <laughs> like He just thought it would be a good idea, I guess. <laughs> and someone in the class like raised their hand, and they challenged me on that. And they're like, I have a question about that. Uh, isn't that murder? Like Elijah, he just killed all of them. Right? God didn't even say to do that. He just did it. And I was kind of like, well, I, you know, I, I felt like Elijah was on the right track with what he was doing. But um, it was true. God didn't tell him to in the story. So I felt like Elijah was on the right track. I'm not sure if I should endorse just killing 450 people, like just because it feels right. <laughs> you know, so I was trying to think of a good solid reason why he should have done that. And then after class got out, then I was thinking, wait, 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 wait. God did tell Elijah to kill those 450 prophets. He just didn't tell Elijah that in the story because he told Elijah to do it back in the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, it talks about false prophets, and this is what it says. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So God actually had said in the Old Testament to kill the false prophets. He just didn't say it in that story because he'd already told it back in Deuteronomy. So I think this is just kind of instructive for us, though. It's instructive for us in understanding the Old Testament civil law and when it applies. Okay, it's still wrong to be a false prophet. That would apply. That'd be kind of in the moral area of the law. But... 
We don't have to literally kill false prophets. That's a civil law thing, okay? We shouldn't be a false prophet. That's a moral command. But we don't have to literally kill them, the civil penalty. So there's a relationship here between the civil law and the moral law. And I think that relationship is so helpful for us when we're learning distinctives and when to apply the Old Testament law. A lot of times the punishments or the penalties for sins, they might not apply the exact same way to our New Testament context. But the original action that's being punished, it's ten, it tends to be something that we still should not do. It still violates a moral law, even if the civil law might not need literally applied. So that brings us here today to the third category of law. Let's talk about the moral law. And the moral law deals with right and wrong, okay? Personal conduct. And obviously, that's still relevant for us no matter when we live. Um, that it, it was stuff that is wrong 4,000 years ago when the Bible was written, and it's wrong today. So let's give some examples of that. Um, Exodus 27, okay? Chapter 20, verse 7. I'm going to read, uh, this is one of the Ten Commandments right here. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So right there is the command not to take God's name in vain. That is still wrong, okay? Even though it was Old Testament law, it's still wrong. Exodus 20, verses 13 through 15, some more commandments. Some more of the Ten Commandments. It says, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Guys, do we just look at that and say, well, that's Old Testament law. We don't we don't have to follow that. I can kill people now. I can do whatever I want. You know, that would be stupid to say that, right? <laughs> we still should not murder or steal or commit adultery. We still shouldn't do those things. Just because they're Old Testament law doesn't mean we just throw it out. Leviticus 18.21. Here's Leviticus, okay? Leviticus, the book that almost all of it doesn't really apply anymore. But here's something that does. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. That that means to burn your children in a fire to a false god called Molech. God says don't do that. You know what? That actually still applies. Now, I know that's not like a major temptation for us. My, I hope it's not anyway, <laughs> to, to throw your children into a fire. Um, if that is a temptation for you, then we, you might need to have, <laughs> we might need to have a stronger podcast for you, but um that's something that still applies, right? Even if it's not a, doesn't feel like a relevant issue, we still should not do that. God did not set us free from the, from the Old Testament law so that now we can throw our children into fire, all right? So hopefully that doesn't need to be said, but in case it did, now you know. So if anyone ever just disregards something from the Old Testament, if, if they ever say, you know, you point out to them an Old Testament law, that would still apply. And they just brush it off and say, oh, that's Old Testament, you know, as if that means it doesn't matter anymore then just take Leviticus 18.21, throw it in their face, okay? If, they're, if, you, if, they, if you say something and they're like, oh, that's just Leviticus, I don't have to listen to that. Well, what about Leviticus 18.21? Should we throw our kids into fire? Is that okay now? So, you know, I don't think this commandment is ever repeated anywhere in the New Testament. It's only in the Old Testament law, but we know we should still follow it or else you're a really, really bad parent. <laughs> this kind of reminds me of a, of a funny story I saw recently. Um, about something called the Sinner's Bible, or the Wicked Bible, as it's sometimes called. So it's the 1631 King James Bible. And they recently discovered one over in um, New Zealand. Someone had came across it in a, like an estate sale. 
And um, they researched it to find out where it had come from. And they turned out, it turned out it was one of these 1631 King James Version Bibles. And it's a really, really rare copy of the Bible. Uh, but, uh, all the copies were supposed to be destroyed. They have a typo in there right in the Ten Commandments. It's where it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, the 1631 King James had a typo right there. They forgot to put in the word not. So it just says, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> so, you know, just one word right there. No biggie, right? Except that it makes the sentence say the opposite of what it was supposed to. So they had they had only printed 1,000 copies of that Bible before they discovered the error. And then whenever the error became known, the people who printed that Bible, they were hauled before King Charles I, and he made them stand trial for heresy. And he ends up fining them 300 pounds, which in modern times, uh, that would be about $45,000. So he, he fined them that and ordered that most of those texts, that they had to be destroyed. And only about 20 copies have survived. So if you're to find one of those surviving Bibles today, one of the sinner's Bibles, where it says, thou shalt commit adultery, just that one typo in it. Um, well, it carries a lot of value as a historical artifact. Um, it's probably worth it's probably worth more than what they charged for it, you know, back then. It's you can find it in some museums now, and they call it the Sinner's Bible. And you know, you can still follow 99.9% of that Bible. Just make sure you do the opposite of what it says about adultery in there. Well, technically, technically, you can't follow 99.9% of it because there's a lot of Old Testament laws that you simply don't have to follow anymore, as we've been talking about today. So, thankfully, it's not really too hard to figure out whether you need to follow any given Old Testament law, most of them are pretty easy to categorize. You know, now, if something is debatable, if something's, if you're not sure if it applies, um, you know, some good rules of thumb to go by. If the New Testament says that you should still follow it, then you should still follow it. And if you have a verse specifically saying that you don't have to follow it, then you don't have to follow it. Okay? There's still going to be some things that are questionable, um, like Sabbaths, okay? I think actually the New Testament is clear on that, but this is something that many Christians disagree about is whether we need to take off one day per week. And, I, and I've heard good Christians on um, good Christians of good intentions and all that just trying to follow God's, God's will the best they can, and they disagree on this issue. And um, so some things are still just going to be questionable or you might be uncertain about them. Tithing, okay? Some say that we don't have to tithe anymore. And this is an area where good Christians, they just don't always get it figured out. And so I feel settled on those topics, but I can just be kind of sympathetic even when other Christians don't, when they find those a little more, um, I don't know if controversial is the word. Uh, I mean, they are controversial, but where they find them ambiguous. Some people think that those are ambiguous. I don't, but some people do. So I try to be a little sympathetic if we're all trying to follow God's law the best we can. Um, but almost all the time. It's pretty easy to figure this stuff out. Uh, so let me go into a modern example here of something that some people say is controversial when it's really not. Uh, a lot of unbelievers, they will mock Christians who say that homosexuality is a sin. And they'll say this. You know, you'll hear stuff like this a lot of times. Well, yeah, the Bible says homosexuality is sin, but it also says not to eat shellfish. You know, so some people will say this to mock Christians or sometimes even Christians, they'll say, well, wait a minute. If we don't follow the Bible's dietary laws, why do we need to follow the sexual laws? You know, they, some Christians will just question, like, 
if we if if we can just disregard some of the Bible's laws, why do we have to follow any of them? You know, it sounds like you get into a little bit of dangerous territory when we start disregarding the Bible's laws. And as I've already explained, that's because those are two different categories of laws. The dietary laws about shellfish, they fall under the religious purity laws. But the sexual laws, like about homosexuality, those fall under the moral laws. Let me just read you an example here. Um, this is something from The Advocate. And this is like, this is a LGBT-friendly publication that um, I guess they, I don't know, you, I guess you could say they cover LGBT issues. And they put out an article. It's 13 Bible passages that homophobes disregard. So if you're a Christian, obviously, if you're one of these Christians who says, well, I think homosexuality is a sin because the Bible says so, you are one of the, the homophobes that this is talking about. So it says 13 Bible passages that homophobes disregard. And then it brings up what I was reading earlier about shellfish. According to Leviticus, I'm reading from their article, God frowns on the consumption of shellfish, such as shrimp, crab, and lobster, from chapter 19, verses 9 through 12. And then it reads a thing kind of like what I did earlier about shellfish, okay? Actually, I don't think, I think they have that wrong when they say chapter 19. I think it's chapter 11 has the the dietary laws. So, um, But anyway, they read some of the dietary laws that I already read before, talking about why we shouldn't eat, you can eat things with scales, but you can't eat things that don't have scales. So like no shrimp. Okay. And then the article finishes this way. And yes, many observant Jews, including those from the LGBT friendly branches of Judaism, avoid shellfish to this day. But most anti-gay Christians have no objections to shellfish. Undoubtedly, they've often dined at Red Lobster. Okay, so they think that they're pointing out a contradiction here in how Christians live, saying, well, yeah, Christians are against, you know, homosexuality or gay marriage, but they still eat at Red Lobster. Well, let me, I've already kind of gone through some of the objections to that. The dietary laws and the sexual laws are two different categories of laws. And the New Testament has already said that the dietary laws don't apply, but that the sexual immorality laws, they still do. So, and, and I just point this out further, too. While both those things, they are both bad in the Old Testament, but they're also bad on different levels. In the Old Testament, if you eat shellfish, your punishment is that, like, you can't go to the tabernacle for the rest of the day. Okay? That's your punishment then. But if you commit homosexual actions in the Old Testament, the punishment for that was death. So even in the Old Testament context, those are two very different types of sins. Obviously, one of those is a lot more severe to God than the other. Um, so if you're ever unsure what category an action falls under, one thing that you can always test is just whether the Bible repeats it in the New Testament or if they nullify it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're told specifically in Acts 10 and in other places that the laws on food don't apply anymore, but homosexuality is repeated as a sinful behavior at least three times in the New Testament. So we don't necessarily have to go, even go into the Old Testament to know why homosexual activity is bad, but why eating shrimp is okay. You know, the New Testament already makes that plain on its own. But I also want to point out, that doesn't mean that I just write off the Old Testament as outdated or irrelevant. The Old Testament law condemns homosexuality, and that part of the law was never nullified. It's right there in Leviticus 18. It gives this whole category of sins that are the sexual immorality sins. There's a whole bunch of things listed in Leviticus 18 and also Leviticus 20, that are considered sexual immorality. So every time you see in the New Testament 
where it condemns sexual immorality, it's also condemning homosexuality at the same time. You know, people say that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality, but Jesus condemned sexual immorality, and he had a whole list of things he considered wrong in regards to sex. And where do you think he got his list? It came from the Old Testament law. Well, we will close down in a few minutes with a quick recap. And if, if I have any further personal applications, we'll get into those. Um, if you have a question on this topic, just leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be more than happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Uh, if you have any questions about an Old Testament law and you're wondering, do we follow this you know, anymore today? Why or why not? send us an email and we'll we'll get into that. We'll answer it right here on the show and we'll do a mailbag on that in the future. So the next time you join us on this podcast, we should be back in Ezekiel as far as where in Ezekiel. I'm not sure because I'm recording this lesson actually really early. So wherever I end up slotting it, I'll put it between a couple of Ezekiel lessons. So um, the next time that we're back, we're going to be in Ezekiel again, and we'll just pick up from wherever we left off before. But let's recap what we talked about today. We, we answered the question of whether we follow the Old Testament law. And the answer is, it just depends on what kind of law it is. There's some laws that we do, some laws we don't, and the New Testament tells us which categories of law that we follow. So with the religious laws, and those are pertaining to sacrifices and offerings and feast days and, and, and food, and temple, and priests. Those things were fulfilled in Christ, so they shouldn't be practiced anymore. And they're teaching us things, they were teaching us things about what Jesus would do, and of course now he's done them. You had the civil laws, and they pertain to ancient Israel, and how they were to conduct themselves as a nation, and those expired, you know, even before the New Testament came around, Israel couldn't follow their civil laws anymore once they were conquered by other nations. They had lost the right to govern themselves, and so the New Testament church, it does not establish a system of governance that just copies the Old Testament civil law. Even by then, they understood we can leave that part behind. The moral law, this is the part that still applies. And, and this is a good reason that we should study it. There's some laws that, are, that I would say are the moral laws, and they're really only found in the Old Testament. You know, like Leviticus, it says, do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute. Now, you know, as I read that, I don't think that command is copied anywhere in the New Testament. Does that mean that God would just be cool with it <laughs> if you made your daughter a prostitute? No. Did Jesus die to give us the right to sell our daughters into prostitution? No, of course not. So the Old Testament moral laws, they still apply, even if they aren't always repeated in the New Testament. We should still study the Old Testament law just to make sure that we are getting the whole counsel of God. And we alluded to Romans 6.14 before, and this is where it says, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So it does say in the New Testament that we're not under the law. But I want to explain what that means. And here's a good way to think of it. We are not to be held to the liabilities that are expressed in the Old Testament law. Uh, Alex, I'll go into that further. But, but I just want to say, that doesn't mean that we don't still try to do the right thing. That what that verse is saying, though, is that now whenever we do the right thing, we do it in joy of the grace of God that we were set free from sin. You see, Romans 6 is making the case that under the Old Testament law, 
we were guilty sinners who had no hope of heaven. Like there was no amount of sacrifices for sin that was ever going to change that. We were doomed. But Jesus died and set us free from the penalty of the law. Now, that doesn't mean that we just sin and sin and sin because we can get away with it now. Like as Paul says in that chapter, he starts it off saying, certainly not, heaven forbid. But he's making the point in that chapter that whenever we do the right thing, now we can do it for pure reasons. We're not doing it to avoid a punishment. We're doing it because we want to honor God in our character. That's what it means here when it says you're no longer under law, but under grace. That's what it's really getting at. So um, to give an example of that, let's say you have two kids and let's say one of them's just a huge slob whenever it comes to tidiness, uh, like he never cleans his room. And so you tell him, you're like, you clean your room while I go to the store or you're grounded. But let's say you have another kid and they just always do a good job cleaning their room. So they don't even hear about that threat. Okay. They don't even need threatened because they just always clean their room without being told. So you go to the store and you come back and both kids have cleaned their room. One of them cleaned his room because he wanted to avoid a punishment. The other one cleaned his room just because he wants to keep his room cleaner because he knows that you like a clean room. Well, they both did the right thing, but one of them had much better motivations. They had much more commendable reasons for their action. Okay. The one who voluntarily cleaned his room He is much more commendable because he's cleaning it up for an unselfish reason. The other one, he only cleaned his room because he wanted to avoid a punishment. He didn't really love cleanliness. He just didn't want to be grounded. The other one cleaned his room in a joy of grace and a love of being clean. That is kind of the point that that Paul is making in Romans chapter 6. That now that we've been set free from the penalties of the law, now whenever we do the right thing, We can do it for really good and pure reasons, not because we're just trying to avoid punishment, but because we love righteousness. We do it under grace, not under law. So that's what that whole thing is about. So I hope that brings some clarity to that line. Um, And that's a big reason that the moral law of the Old Testament, it's a part that's never changed for us. The moral law is rooted in the character of God, and God never changes. You know, laws like honor your father and mother, you shall not lie. Those commands still apply to us today, just as much as they did when they were written thousands of years ago, because God's morals don't change. They have to do with the character of God. They have to do with becoming more like Jesus. And the way God relates to humans, that can change over time. That's like why the religious laws and the civil laws, they don't directly apply, because there was a big change once Jesus came. So the way God relates to humans might change, but God's character never changes. That's why the religious laws might change but the moral laws stay the same. And and we're under grace now, and grace is so much better because now we have a freedom to choose to do right. It's not because we're avoiding a civil punishment. It's because we want to be more like Jesus. In the Old Testament, um, one of the prophets, Jeremiah, he prophesied that a new covenant was coming. It says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord." For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you know what the word testament means? I'm not sure if you ever thought about this, but you know, we divide our Bible up into two parts called the Old Testament and the New Testament. But did you ever think about what the word testament actually means? Where the, the word testament means covenant. Both of those words are the exact same thing. Testament equals covenant. So the Old Testament actually means the Old Covenant. And even in Jeremiah, you know, even in the Old Testament itself, they were already saying back then, we are the Old Covenant. God's going to make a new one. And so the old one, it ended with Malachi, and then Jesus came. And from that page on, that's why your Bible says New Testament. It means the New Covenant, which is exactly what Jeremiah was prophesying here. So Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant with Jesus. Our sins are forgiven in this new covenant. Everybody can know the Lord personally in this new covenant at the time of the New Testament, right right after Jesus left. You can just imagine a Christian, maybe they're taking a walk with with one of their pagan friends, and the pagan says, well, you know, I'm off to visit my temple now and, and honor my God. Hey, say, where's your temple? Well, the Christian could turn to him and say, actually, Jesus is my temple. The pagan would be surprised. He'd say, what? You have no temple? Then where do the priests go? The Christian says, well, actually, Jesus is my priest. The pagan would say, oh, you've got to have priests. Who else is going to offer the sacrifices? And the Christian replies, actually, Jesus is my sacrifice. The pagan would say, well, No priests, no temple, no sacrifices. What kind of religion is this? And the Christian would say, it's no kind of religion at all. Because that's what Jesus did. He started a new religion. And it's not like any religion ever before. All the other religions, you know, even the false ones that you read about today, they're all of man's attempts to find God. But Jesus was God coming to find man. And Jesus made a new covenant. It's not like the old one. And it's not like anything else either. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, do not listen to the radio in Canada.